Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rob Moore here with a very special interview, someone who's very well known and regarded on the other side of the pond, if you like, in America. But I think uh, bringing him to the UK is quite a gift. Now, the, the man that's going to be sharing the next 40 minutes or so with us is founder of Wired Magazine, which obviously is obviously a huge publication. And future tech trends, etc., is something I've I've become very much more interested in, and I believe every entrepreneur, especially the disruptive entrepreneurs, should be very much into the future and the techs and the, and the trends, um, really to enable you to disrupt as an entrepreneur and kind of be ahead of everybody else, I suppose, in your business ventures. So he co-fired Wired magazine in 93, served as an executive editor uh, for the first seven years. He's written a dozen or more books, many of which are on future trends and tech. And the most recent is called The Inevitable, which I'd love to ask him about while we're on the show. He's also founding editor and co-publisher of the popular Cool Tools website, which is something I've really got into, sort of tools, hacks of all the different types of lifestyle tools you might want to use. And I think it's a very unique thing. From 1984 to 1990, this man was publisher and editor of Whole Earth Review, which is a journal of unorthodox technical news. And again, something that maybe many of us in the UK could embrace a little bit more. He co-founded the Ongoing Hackers Conference, was involved in the launch of Well, which is a pioneering online service which started in 1985. And at that, at that point, I was, I think, five years old. So that's, again, very exciting. And has written many books, which I, I'm, I'm going to leave him to talk about through the podcast and a bit later on. But I just want to officially say a huge thank you. I'm very excited to introduce Kevin Kelly to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Rob. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So if we get straight in, because I know we've got about 35 minutes left of your time, and I want to respect that. So th this podcast, The Disruptive Entrepreneur, is about disruptive entrepreneurship. Now, I think that word has slightly different connotations in the UK to the US, because I think if you think disruptive in, in the US, for example, it's almost a bit sort of trite, I would say. I love watching Silicon Valley, the, <laughs> the, the yes. TV show, and they mock it all. Yeah. I think in the UK, we're a little bit more behind. So disruptive to us is maybe innovate, change, maybe a, be a leader of innovation. So what does disruptive mean to you with maybe without all the sort of Americanisms and stereotypes? Yeah, it's it's changing the way the game is played, which is actually a very fundamental and creative act. So it's not just coming up with something different, which is hard enough, but it's coming up with a way in which the game is played differently. It's it's changing the rules of the game, so to speak. And so it's it's a more profound level of change. Therefore it's more powerful and therefore also, you know, the, the consequences, including the negative consequences, are stronger. So the great examples of disruption I like to talk about are the, the ways in which, say, um, IBM 
in, in the digital realm. IBM was the major seller of computers, and many, many people tried to compete against IBM, and they were never successful. They died one after another, and IBM became kind of like you know the major dominant player. And there was really no way to compete against them, but they were toppled, so to speak, by a company that was making software, and that was Microsoft. And so Microsoft disrupted that entire industry by shifting the the game to a different place. And then Microsoft was dominant, and many people tried to compete against Microsoft and were unsuccessful because they had the OS. And uh, like IBM before them, uh, IBM had been the kind of the canonical business case. It was the company that everybody respected, that made the most money. It was the, the best place to work. Microsoft then took that mantle, and they were sort of unbeatable for a long time. And then they were disrupted. They were overturned. They were displaced, not by a company making OSs, but by a search company. And you had Google, and then, and then Google became the the paramount company that everybody wanted. So they had they had their there was a new kind of a rules in the game. There was there was a new game being played, and then so Google is now susceptible and probably has been displaced in some ways by Facebook, which again was not doing search. It was coming off from the side. So for me, the game is being disrupted. The rules are changing. And what you want to kind of do in, in, in the highest order is, is to change the game. And that is, uh, you know, it's, it's a high bar, but it's a very, very powerful thing. Change the game that's being played. So, Kevin, that throws out uh, a couple of questions because I think about this a lot. And I think a lot about disruption versus imitation and how much should we really look to strive to be unique and change the world because I think many entrepreneurs want to change the world but let's be honest out of how many businesses that have started up there must be like I guess 0.001 that changed the world and there still must be at least a good percentage that imitate and still are quite successful uh, I believe there's a car hire company that made a big thing about being number two for example so how much should we focus on trying to find the big panacea thing that's you know, going to change the world versus maybe just getting perfect later, starting with something that might be an imitation or just a small solution and building up towards it? And then also, how much of this disruption is sort of retrospective, i.e., you know, did Zuckerberg or Musk or anyone at the time when they started their business model go, Eureka, I've got the world changing disruption? Or did they only realize when they'd done it? I know that's a big question, but yeah, yeah. So no, I think it's very fair. And 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 first of all, like in the VC world of Silicon Valley, there's they have a very restrictive definition of startup. When a VC is talking about a startup, they're talking about a startup that can grow and scale, and they they look down upon businesses they call lifestyle businesses, which are basically. You can sort it this way. They're interested in businesses that can make a fortune. They're not interested in businesses that can make a living. Yeah. And so these lifestyle businesses are the mom and pops businesses. They actually be very profitable in the in the person or a family making money. And and so there's there's 
sort of in that world, there's sort of no honor for that. But that, but these are just viable businesses that probably even have a higher rate of success than most startups reaching for scale. So, so first of all, I would say that that that, that we 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 shouldn't be. I mean, I think most people should not be trying for the scale. That's 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 a rarefied beast. The second thing I would say uh, about it is that while I was I was giving the example of whole industries being disrupted, you don't have to disrupt an industry to be successful. You can just you can disrupt uh, the little the local game that you are playing, and so. Any any most real innovations are are doing that. They are they are innovative because they are changing the game. And the game doesn't have to be a whole industry. It could be the game that your neighborhood restaurants are playing. Right? There's 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 a formula. There's something. There's there's some method or system that works. And uh, you can come in and you can be innovative and change the game by introducing, you know, I don't know, iPads on the tables or the way in which reservations are done or, or, or something, the way the food is, is delivered or there's, there's, the, the game doesn't have to be the entire industry. The game can be something much closer, much more immediate, much smaller scale. But your attempt, it's not you're, you're trying to be different. It's you're trying to be authentic and honest and doing something that is not the same as it's not the same game and that means changing the way in which things are changing that means changing what people think the rules of the game are changing the nature of it changing what the what you're trying to optimize those are all different techniques for 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 getting there so i think i i want to I was using examples of, of change in industry, but that's not necessarily where you have to play that game. Sure. Because I think one way, I'd like your thoughts on this, Kevin, one way to maybe disrupt, evolve, innovate an industry is to borrow from non-related industries. Absolutely. Where you just you take something that's done in a completely different industry, bring it to yours, and that can create freshness, uniqueness, I, I believe there's a restaurant, isn't there? A secret restaurant. I think you go through a phone booth or something. Yeah. There's there's blind restaurants where they turn out the lights and all your servers are blind. There's a naked have, one that's just come out, I believe, in 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 the UK as well, where you're not allowed to wear any clothes. Yeah, yeah. So 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 those. I mean, there 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 are people are playing around with the very you know what's what, what's considered a restaurant, what's not, and so uh, it, it's fun. It, I mean, the innovation is is actually playful in that sense. But 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 I I think the the technology what it's doing is is giving us more choices. It's actually making it a little bit easier to play in that sense of opening up different ways that we can say, and you're absolutely right that most of the disruption is coming laterally from outside, you know, the, the outside the current industry. So I always tell people that your major future competitor is not within your own industry. It's going to be someone coming from outside it. And that's, by the way, is one of the, one of the ways, one of the reasons I counsel that people do things outside of their business. You know, you'll kind of mingle with things that are far from what you think the core of your business is because that's where those ideas would come. Travel, attend the conference that's not in your business, you know, to, to talk to, to people who seem to to be working on something that is completely unrelated because you are more likely to find that kind of 
innovative lateral approach outside of what everybody knows. And, and, and that's sort of what you're doing is you're challenging, quote, what everybody knows, unquote, which is really they don't know. And so that the kind of exercise, I guess it would say it, of looking at what's happening from fresh eyes is a real challenge when we're all connected. When, when we're all seeing the same thing, watching the same movies, you know, sharing the same uh, songs, being able to think and see differently when we're connected becomes an increasing challenge, but it becomes increasingly more successful if you're able to do that. Sure. And I think, actually, this is where maybe, a, as you call it, mama pop business, a lifestyle business, a small business, a traditional business that's not necessarily tech related. I think this is where it has an advantage because I can imagine being in Silicon Valley. Everyone's on the same trends, reading the same books, you know, kind of a lot in the same way. You know, I'm quite interested in that world. But of course, I'm from Peterborough, which is quite close to London. And so I'm not as connected as, you know, a lot of the podcasts I listen to, for example. But if you're a kind of a local restaurant or, or a, a business that's not really in that world, I think you have a major d- advantage because if you bring some of that innovation and that technology in, like you said, using iPads at, at a restaurant or, for example, a local uh, real estate or you know agent or we call them estate agents in the UK, I mean, using Snapchat to do, to do viewings or streaming to do viewings so people can do viewings of houses from their laptop. I mean, that's not new in the tech world, but I mean, that's, that could be really innovative in, in a kind of, I don't want to say backward because that's not fair, but in, a, in business models that are not quite up with tech. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the advantage of everybody having a smartphone and being connected is, is that um, innovations can travel fast, that you could, that your own experiments and new ideas could in fact scale to the world they, they could they could disseminate and you can also basically learn from the rest of the world and so that is the that's part of this new set of tools that we're engineering and the other set of tools is that we are simply making more and more ways that we can collaborate together you know 1.5 million billion billion people on Facebook are collaborating they're, they're they're doing kind of trivial things of sharing photos and gossip of the friends, but there's nonetheless this is the first step where we actually have 1.5 billion people doing something together. That's this technology enabling us to to collaborate and to to, to share to to cooperate at, at, in scales and speeds that were not at all even possible before. And some people will figure out really cool new innovative things to do with that scale. But even on smaller ways. These tools allow us to, again, collaborate and do things in ways that we could not before. And that's where a lot of this, this, this excitement about the many new businesses that will be developed, the many new services, the many, the many new ways to make value that we can traditional businesses can tap into, that can be transformed by. The game can be changed when you add the communication tools that we have, and then we're going to add the artificial intelligence tools. These are all huge opportunities for even the most common business. I mean, just think about, take take an age-old business like taxi cabs. You add AI, artificial intelligence, and communications. You add GPS, 
which was the huge innovation. Then you have Uber. I mean, Uber was not was only possible because of GPS. And so that is a traditional thing that's now been transformed by this. And I think we're going to go down the list of you know laundries, uh, florists, bakers. These are all in the process of being rethought of. When we have these new collaborative tools, we have the new AIs, we'll have the new virtual realities, all these these traditional businesses each have an opportunity to be reimagined and um, at, even at the local scale and people living far from Silicon Valley have as much of a chance and maybe even more of a chance of coming up with something new because they are seeing the world differently. And so this, for me, is a very, very exciting time because I think it's 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 going to be very global and in 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 terms of where the, the innovations are coming from. And you know, it's not just England, it's not just Northern Europe, it's it's China, it's it's India. And so I think we're gonna be paying more attention to these places and I, I, I think there's really there's no area that has any kind of of uh, monopoly on innovation. That, that there's, as you say, there's there's much advantage to being off to the side because I think it's, I try to look to the margins to see where the center is going. I mean, if you basically, let me reverse that. So if you want to see where the center is going, you look at the margins because that's where the innovation takes place. Sure. So, um, I mean, I had 12 que- questions listed out and we're still on one. <laughs> okay, well, number two. What's, that's, that's great. I mean, I could go on about this for ages. Just wanted to add something in and maybe what we'll do is, We'll either do some rapid fire at the end or, or maybe if this goes down well, we'll sure. part two sometime in the future. But I think the network effect just immediately came into my mind there because if you look over history, some of the, the businesses that become the biggest in the world are where you get networks. So you get telecommunications, you get rail, obviously automotive, that kind of thing. And of course, the future is internet and, and anything like Airbnb connected and um, of course, Uber connected. And I think initially a lot of people, and, and I certainly thought, well, you know, how can I make my business like this? But then surely we can think of it another way is how can we leverage those platforms? Because, you know, we can be the, I don't want to use it in a negative con- connotation, but we can be the parasite in that, you know, we can use the networking things like Facebook and social media. And, we can, and rather than design it, we can tap onto it and, and leverage it. Uh, to grow our own businesses, and you know, we don't have to be. You know, I have these big delusions of grandeur of wanting to be, you know, some huge entrepreneur. But we don't have to be, do we? We can have our own thing that fits our own lifestyle by tapping into them, which to me surely is the most exciting thing for the future of, of how many there are. Exactly. You, not everyone needs to be the platform, because in fact, what we discovered is is, is that as the platforms are more and more successful they actually have to operate more like governments in some ways and so you know and and that's actually not a position everyone wants to be in but that's sort of what facebook is sort of realizing is there's such a vast platform with a billion and a half uh, people that that they actually have to uh, be more governmental in that sense more bureaucratic and i think um you're right The, the, the advantages of these platforms is that they enable whole ecosystems of all kinds of species to flourish. And you don't need to be the platform. You can live in the ecosystem itself and you can be the you know the starfish or the or the palm or the or the butterfly within that ecosystem. These are all viable, you know, livelihoods. These are all viable uh, ways to make a living. And so there, you know, Facebook has opened up a huge ecosystem and there will be others after them. 
There'll be the virtual reality worlds, which I, I suspect will become the, some of the biggest companies that we have in the next uh, 25 years. There'll be vast. There'll be whole internal economies, eco, uh, you know, economic systems within these worlds. And there's there's hardware, software, socialware, you know, the entire, again, vast rainforest of opportunities there. And, and you don't need to be making platforms. I think it's, it's a very rare company that would succeed, and most don't need to. So you're, you're right. You, you should focus on being the butterfly, being, you know, whatever it is that you want to be. And that will be sufficient of a, of a challenge for most people. Uh, I like the way you used ecosystem. That was what I was looking for. Parasite obviously isn't yeah, right, yeah, right. the word, but at least we got there in the end. So, okay, we're going to move on to number two now because I think this is a good lead sure. in. So that is being a very a man who's written a lot of books on the future, and it's clearly something you're passionate about. What future trends do you think are leverageable, monetizable, but uh, you know also useful and helpful? Just in your opinion. Well, let me modify that. Of all the trends that I'm talking about, I think the one that there's several that that if I was in business, I would be paying a lot of attention to right now, and that is artificial intelligence, also called AI, which um, in my view, the reason why you want to pay attention to it is that it's, I think the significance is on the level of the industrial revolution where we took artificial power. So, so in the agricultural age, uh, the only way to make things was to use your own muscles or the muscles of animals, and that could only take you so far. All the things that we're enjoying right now, the entire landscape around us has all been enabled because we harnessed, we invented a way to do artificial power through steam power, through electricity, which we then, and fossil fuels, which we then distributed in a grid. So anybody, farmer somewhere, uh, could buy electricity and use that to power and use it to innovate so they could take something that was manual, like a manual water pump, and add electricity that you bought from the grid, which was a commodity, a utility, and then you'd have the electric pump, which, and then you multiply that by a million times, and that was the Industrial Revolution, which enabled us to, you know, to, to, to build skyscrapers and to, and to highways, railways, all these things, factories, making refrigerators, were all based on artificial power. And we're now going to do the same thing, but even bigger, using artificial intelligence. We'll take something that exists that's already been electrified, like a electric pump, and now we're going to cognify it, add, add smartness to it, and we'll have smart pumps. And and then we multiply that by like a, you know a, a million, and then we have this new uh, new landscape, so to speak, where where um, everything we've previously electrified we're now going to cognify, and and that'll be adding thousands of equivalents of thousands of mines to this 24 hours a day that that are available to us. Just like on a grid, just on the cloud, we can buy as much of this AI as you want. And that's the whole point is that it's a, a commodity. It's a utility like electricity that you'll be able to purchase to do what you want. So you don't need to make the AI. You just buy the AI. And that's why I say for me, the next the formula for the next 10,000 startups, and I'm not talking about big you know, platform making. I'm talking about the mom and pop. The next... 10,000 startups is to take something and add artificial intelligence to it that you buy. And right now, this minute, you can purchase AI from Google if you want to try it out. You can go to Google, go to their 
part where they have the AI and you can purchase it for six cents a hundred hits to do something. And so that's where we're going for me. That's where I would be looking is what could you do with a thousand non-human minds, thousand brains working on something 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What could you do with those thousand minds? And we're we're just at the beginning. There's so many things that that are going to be easy pickings that we'll look back on in 30 years and people say, oh my gosh, I wish I had been alive in 2016 when this was all brand new and it was so easy to do the easy stuff. You know, it's like back in the internet boom. You you take something, a bookstore, you put it online. You take a pet store, you put it online. (laughs) You know, it's like we're that's where we are right now. It's funny you say that because I just got some goosebumps, you just talking through that, because I just had this vision of how AI and Internet of Things and virtual reality can all kind of triangulate and merge together. Because like, I, I'm, I'm a property investor and, and property is one of my passions as well. And it's something I've, I've done more than being an entrepreneur. And I just have these visions of all of those three things linking so that you can view any house and make any offer on any house, anytime, anywhere with your goggles or your smartphone oh, yeah. or your Mac. And I mean, just oh, imagine. Yeah. I, I, I did that. I did a, I did a real estate walkthrough of this mansion in Malibu while I was sitting in San Francisco. And it was, it was totally persuasive. I mean, it was better than being there in many ways. And, um, Yes, that's that's now. I mean, imagine, that's yeah, I mean, imagine if you're the first, you know, or the, or yeah, the yeah. first in your city. You only need to be the first in your city, don't you? You don't need to be the first right, in but, the world. But I, 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 the one thing I would say is is that you often don't want to be first in, in many ways. Because, by the way, Google was not the first search engine. Amazon was not the first uh, store or bookstore online. Facebook was not the first social media. None of them were first. So not only you know are we at the beginning of this, but you don't even need to be first, and you may not even want to be first. Sure, I mean, I guess you want to be early. We call them fast followers, right? The gazelle, we call them the gazelles, the fast followers. You want to be right behind the first because <laughs> the first get all the arrows. Yeah, I get. So those arrows are what cost, mistakes. What other arrows are there being the you know? Well, here, here's the thing. It's like in the here's the thing. Here's Here's this, they call it the innovator's dilemma. There is a dilemma about being an innovator and disruptor. And the dilemma is, is the fact that the, the area in which these disruptions happen come from a place that's really terrible to do business in. So, so in the beginning, VR, AI, is going to be an area where there's going to be a small market. It's unproven technology. There are low margins. It's high risk. It's everything you don't want a business environment to be. But that's where these innovations begin, and that's where, where often startups are forced to, to, to operate. And they're operating there not because they have any choice, because they don't have a choice. They can't buy their way into a better environment. And that's why the death rate in startups is so high is because it is kind of like the worst place in the world to do business. And so the dilemma for, for big companies is that every – Every business logic, everything about the business would say what they should do is spend their money on perfecting what they do. They shouldn't spend their money in, in, in investing into these areas where there's low margin, low profit, high risk, unproven technology. That's crazy. And so the dilemma is, but they have to in some senses are also going to be left behind. 
and the and the the other side is that they can't because it doesn't make any business sense to. And so that's the dilemma. And oftentimes, most businesses, the more successful they are, the more difficult it is to to do the wrong thing and, and invest their money into these places where there's it's so, so unlikely that they're going to succeed. And so that's why the startups have an advantage is because they don't have that option. They can only play in this area where they have low low, low capital, low success of, of, of you know low margins, high high risk. And so so that's the advantage is is that out of desperation the, the they have to operate in that and they have to they can't buy solutions they have to actually invent them and so it's 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 you know the small businesses because they can't buy a solution they're rewarded if they can actually be creative and innovative sure and i i guess that's why big companies have big r&d budgets but they, they often invent things that they can't implement for the reasons i just said it's a very typical Typical response is they, you know, like places like Xerox who invented the um, the mouse and the, the the Windows, they couldn't they couldn't sell it because it was damaging because because they'd have to have a business that was operating where there was no, nobody who wanted to buy it. It was only like hobbyists. So Steve Jobs saw this technology. He's he didn't have the same restrictions. He could operate on a business that was really near death the entire time, and um, he made it work. Even though they had discovered it, they weren't capable of implementing it for the reasons I just said. Sure. And I think um, one of the big myths, I think, about Steve Jobs is that everyone thinks he was a real innovator, but a, a lot of his tech was existing already, wasn't he? Just, he just used it maybe in a better um, capacity. Well, not only that, but a lot of the things he tried didn't work at all. Yeah. Uh, we only remember, people only tend to remember the things that he did, but he did so many of them that were total bombs. Mm. From the next machine to the Newton to uh, the uh, various versions of the Macintosh, which didn't sell at all. So he did the thing you need to do, which is he kept doing it. He he made things that failed, and then didn't he just made them again. And he had a high tolerance for failure. So so keep that in mind too. Okay, so that leads me on to one of the questions I'd got, which I really wanted to ask you is. And I think it's great what we've just been talking about is how much time we should spend in the now, you know, doing the do, and how much should, time should we spend in the future? Because there's a balance, isn't there? Obviously, if you're all, absolutely, if you're all in the future, you're a dreamer. Right, right. And if you're all in the doing the doing, you're probably a digger, and maybe you're digging the wrong way. So what are your thoughts on that? So, so actually, the amount of time or innovation and resources that you need is actually not very high. You know, I, they're, they're, they're less, you know, it's, it's a single digit. A percent of the time or money or resources. We're not talking about. I mean, beyond say the very initial stages of a startup, where you're, you know, where you're trying to make something happen. But I mean, if you're in a business already that's already going, five percent or something. It's 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 not. uh, You 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 actually don't want too much of it because then it's just chaos and disarray. You want to keep the machine going, and you have to really kind of focus on that. But there, you should have some single-digit percentage of, of things that you're trying and that um, you want to have frequent small failures. You don't want to have big catastrophic failures. They call it you know, fast iteration where you um, and, and you do the design approach to, to, to life, which is that you prototype your way. You don't think about things too much. You just make little things. You just try stuff all the time, and you, you through iteration, get to where you're going rather than kind of setting off this big project where you're trying to make it 
work or perfect or something. No, no, no. It's 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 a, it's it's a small, tiny, ongoing, constant experiment, iteration, try, which is a part of the process, but it's not a significant part. And I and and, and you 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 know, and so it doesn't really interfere too much with the machine that you need to keep running. Sure, and um, I mean, I don't know how much of a and I use this word loosely, but an addicted entrepreneur, you are, Kevin. I am, and I, I've quite, I find it quite hard to switch off. I, like, I've been in San Diego for nearly three weeks for my son's World Golf Championships, but kind of morning, evening, and night, my brain is still on thinking about it. And so I think you can use travel, time away, time out, just to let your brain ruminate in the future is that something that happens with you or do you just like to completely disconnect when you're kind of away from work work if you like well i do i do disconnect in order to think differently and and, and the reason i travel a lot which i do and not just to big cities but as much as i can to to remoter parts of the world is to keep my mind flexible for one because you're confronted with other ways of doing things but secondly to then to look back at your homeland, your home industry from their point of view. So you have this, your forced alternative view on things. And thirdly, to actually witness completely different approaches to the similar problems and to see how others solve them, which maybe that solution is not even transferable, but it'll provoke something that could be. And so I think, again, going back to, uh, you know, attending a conference that's not in your industry, reading books, going somewhere that um, you wouldn't normally go, all of these things are instruments for, for that. And I think also, you know, turning off your phone or not looking at something, whatever your habits are, disrupting your habits is, is, is another way of, of expressing that. But in particular, I think travel in the broadest sense of visiting things outside of your circle of habit is probably the most potent thing that you can do. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. So I'd love to talk about your latest book, if that's all right. Is it The Inevitable? Is that your latest one? Yes, it is. It's just been a couple of weeks old. It's called The Inevitable, and it's about the 12 directions, the themes of technology in the next 20 to 30 years. Is it is it on audio? Because a lot of it is. It is. Uh, it is on Audible, and it is in Kindle. And uh, I believe that they've kind of tweaked uh, the thing recently. It's available in the UK. Ah, uh, there, there is life on the other side of the pond. Exactly. So yeah, can maybe just go over sort of a few minutes, sort of some of the the, the, the things you'd like to share about what the book's about, and you just have a little bit of a dig in. Yeah, the the idea behind the book is that it's kind of outlining the landscape of where we're going to, not talking about the specific or trying to even attempt it to predict the specific products, but it's on the level of the general direction that we're going. So, and and they're all and my chapters are all verbs. These are all motions, processes. So one of the major things that we we see a shift that's sort of underpinning a lot of these is a shift away from products to services, this dematerialization, away from the solid to the liquid, away from from things that are nouns to things that are verbs, things that are um, the tangible to the intangible. So we have this world right now which is very fluid that's being driven by software rather than hardware, by understanding that, that services are, can be more powerful than products, to where you, you access things instead of own them, 
So we have this shift from ownership to access, where access can give you almost as much uh, of the benefits as, as ownership without many of the penalties and, and duties of ownership. And to where things are flowing and liquid and decentralized and softer, more collaborative. So that's the general trend. And the specifics are understanding that, I uh, say, tracking is increasing. We're tracking ourselves, where companies track us, and then we have this sort of ongoing direction of more and more tracking. What does that mean for businesses, for individuals? There's privacy uh, concerns, there's ways that we are uncomfortable, there's ways that this is powerful. The reason why we track is we want to personalize things. We value personalization over privacy, basically. And so with tracking services and businesses and even our friends can more directly give us what we want for our particular personal makeup, temperament, interests, genetics, whatever it is, that is going to happen through tracking. So I'm kind of painting this picture of us increasing the amount of tracking in the world and maybe some of the things we might have to do to make it comfortable and then some of the many advantages that we would have by using that information in appropriate ways to deliver personalized services. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. Okay, well, I've just added, added it to my list. I've got a huge list of, I'm, I'm actually nearly 200 audiobooks this year. I love listening and I uh, haven't got that yet. So I've definitely added that to my list. To finish off then, one more question about you, Kevin, then just a couple of uh, rapid fires and, and then I'll, I'll let you go on in advance. Thank you. You said earlier, and this, this might have been a, a slight of language, but I'd love to just challenge you on it because it's really interesting to me and I'm sure everyone listening. You said, if I were an entrepreneur, and I found that really interesting. So what do you regard yourself as and what do you do with your time? Because you look like an entrepreneur to me and what you do and you're still writing and still you know, sharing your knowledge. So what do, you, what do you see yourself as and what do you do with your time? Yeah, I mean, I have not just making you know, books. I have uh, many other projects and we're um, involved with a, um, a group that we call ourselves a do tank instead of a think tank <laughs> because we do things. And so I think I don't use I don't normally use the word entrepreneur because I, that to me is a um, that's a task and not so much an occupation. For me, my occupation is much more in, in packaging ideas together, whether that's in books, magazines, websites, video, audio, whatever. I, I package, package ideas and I am entrepreneur in the sense of I'm creating and innovating within that occupation of, of, of ideas. And so I often will, will write down that I'm an editor because that's my natural uh, function in this world is I like that's what editors do is they package ideas. We don't have another you know title other than editor or sometimes people call them producers. But I, I, um, I see myself as, as someone who is a curator of ideas of, of um, editor, impresario, producer of complex ideas and make them understandable. And entrepreneur is is definitely part of that process because if 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 any if if anywhere there's there's the demand for thinking differently, it's in this realm of ideas. So so yes, I am an entrepreneur in that sense, and and like a lot of entrepreneurs, I don't get much satisfaction out of maintaining the old thing that I want. I'm always wanting to move on to the next, and that's something that um, 
So I have a couple of things that I've left behind. I was involved with the beginning the quantified self movement. I launched that, but I turned that over to my partner because I wasn't interested in maintaining it. We did a campaign to enumerate and catalog all the living species on the planet with scientists, but I also left that behind. And so there is a sense in which I have you know, started things and left them behind because I'm much more interested in starting things than I am in maintaining them. And so, and I'm better at it as well. So I do think of myself as someone who innovates, but my occupation is much more in the realm of packaging ideas. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just wrote down three words as you were speaking, collator, creator, curator. Uh, You know, I think entrepreneur is kind of like the packaged word, isn't it? The encapsulating word. But I think often, like you said, editing, packaging, collating, creating, curating, there's lots of different words for actually what we do. Exactly. Probably more accurate, but maybe a little bit less glitzy. So that's really interesting. I could go on for hours and hours and hours, and you know I've got to be respectful of your time. Uh, so a couple of quick fires, uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave you and, and thank you once again. So one big win and one epic fail that you've been involved in, that, just for fun maybe. Well, the epic win was in starting Wired. The epic fail was in launching the all-species inventory, which didn't work. Okay, great. And then entrepreneurs you've seen and maybe mentored, observed, whatever, a common – epic fail that they do? Oh, well, I've had the privilege of hanging around with some of the most notable, you know, successful billionaire type entrepreneurs. And I think for me is they often at some point stop listening. And the ones that I have most respect for are the ones who can actually continue to listen despite their huge success. Okay, that's great. Uh, and then let's flip that. What's one of the common uh, traits that you really admire in those kind of types? Their ability to approach problems in a way that they, no one else would. Uh, it's simply they, they almost, to, to a class, have an ingrained habit of coming at things from a completely different angle. Maybe they're pretending they're not human. Maybe they're pretending that... Uh, they're from the future. They know how it works. I don't know. There, there's lots of different tricks, but they have an uncanny ability to see the world differently. Hmm. Interesting. And then a top do and a top don't for an entrepreneur, collator, creator. Well, I mean, a- advice, you mean? Yeah. A top uh, thing they should do and top thing they shouldn't yeah. do. Read at least 10 books a year for a top do. Yeah. And top don't is don't worry about your competition very much. Just try to serve customers uh, i mean i think everyone listening you, obviously you're listening to this podcast you're probably like me addicted to podcast books or audi- audible books audios all that kind of thing i think that's a common trait i've noticed i'm amazed how many people don't read that many books especially sort of any non-fiction books or listen to audio before the age of 25 i didn't uh, and it's almost become an addiction and I, I, there's many personal development mentors and gurus have said that the difference between successful people and maybe less so is the books they've read and the people that they've met and i'll certainly uh, jump on that so kevin i want to say a huge thank you just one more final thing where can we follow you you know where can we watch your journey and and, you know and, and keep learning from you 
So I have a website. It's my initials, kk.org. You must have got that early on in the day. Exactly, kk.org. And I have a book page and all kinds of my other blogs, Cool Tools, The True Films. It's about recommended documentaries, etc. And I'm Kevin2Kelly on the social medias. I'm active on Twitter, but not so much other places. So that's where you can follow. I appreciate so much your time and your attention. I hope you guys enjoy the book, whether it's Audible or Kindle or on physical dead wood flesh. I am um, honored to be here and talking to you, and thanks for your uh, rapt attention. Kevin, thank you. I just want to check those handles one more time so everyone's got them correctly. Is it? So it's Kevin2, the number two, Kelly? Yes, Kevin number two, Kelly. Great. And then it's kk.org for... Kate. Yeah. Correct. Great. Kevin, thank you very much for your time. Sure thing. Bye-bye.